his social fellow society, and he worked for 19 years at Croydon and took great interest in it, although at first I think his interests were mainly in radio. And he's going to show you a lot of slides tonight of the early days, starting in 1915. I'm sure you'll be interested to see those and to hear what he has to say. Well, with that brief introduction, he asked me to be brief. I'll now call on Mr. Lane to give his lecture. Mr. Chairman, lady and gentlemen, I'm sorry, I thought we had two ladies. Um, first of all, I'm very conscious of the privilege of talking to the historical group and their friends this evening. When this idea, idea was first mooted, because I happened to have been at Croydon, I thought you might be interested in my early photography experiments, but actually had I had any idea 46 years ago, I would have spent a bit more on my photography and less on my motorbike. But anyway, although you'll find that some of the photographs are not too good, you may not have seen that angle before on the early days of Croydon. But my ambition is to concentrate on the earliest years, uh, in effect, show you my scrapbook, and um, perhaps as there is a few minutes left, uh, if you've got any particular questions, I'll do what I can. Now, um, not many color slides in the early days, but I thought we'd start off in 1966. If you were to take a walk round Croydon Aerodrome now, this is the sort of thing that is going on. And it won't be very long now before it is partly a housing estate. And um, I'm glad to learn that some of it is still to be um, open ground. Some parts of this area have been uh, public open space for over a hundred years. Now, as you probably well know, the birth of civil aviation in the United Kingdom, international civil aviation, was at Hounslow Heath, not at Heathrow Airport, as some people still think. Hounslow Heath is a different spot. That was where um, United Kingdom international civil aviation was born, but its nursery was Croydon Aerodrome. There was a time, of course, when there was no aerodrome, and I thought I'd try and find information to justify a sketch map. That is what the area looked like before there was ever an aerodrome. Uh, one or two interesting things. You'll notice the odd shores, the bits of woodland around, and you'll notice New Barn Farm in the centre. And uh, if you can see clearly, I tried to put in some green contours which were of great interest over the years to the flying fraternity. If you can see the 200 foot contour here, you'll notice there's a bit of a kink. That was the famous ridge known to pilots. 
It's accounted over the years for many undercarriages. Here, you notice we've risen a hundred feet to Purley, and the result of that was, of course, uphill takeoffs in this direction, and also when the wind was strong and in the south, it produced a certain downdraft over here, which was also distressing on occasion to pilots. Anyway, that's what it looked like before the First World War. Now, another thing which you probably know is that it was here that uh, training squadrons of the Royal Flying Corps and later the Royal Air Force were based and a camp was established from 1915 onwards until after the end of the war and um, later on it was occupied by other by a group headquarters until 1920 and that was in March March the 29th 1920 that was when um, Civil Aviation Air Ministry took it over it was always a state-owned aerodrome and um, that's when civil aviation activities started and services progressively moved over from Hounslow Heath. Now there was another aerodrome operating around London uh, they successfully, that was Cripplewood, Handley Page Transport ran their own base and towards the end of 1919 they had their own customers facilities as well so they were able to give up the trying practice of positioning flights from Cricklewood to Hounslow Heath before they could go to Paris etc and um, having their own customs when Croydon opened they were able to operate direct from Cricklewood but in the course of time they progressively moved over and established their base at Croydon. Um, reasons for change to Croydon uh, first of all Hounslow Heath was needed by the War Office for to go back to cavalry training Croydon was nearer London it was two to three hundred feet above sea level further from the river therefore the feeling was it might be more free from fog coincident with the civil aerodrome activities in the center Perhaps I ought to mention here, by the way, that the service flying that had gone on was to the west of that centre road, Plough Lane. To the west. Now to the east, flying also went on, but that was from aircraft turned out by one of the national aircraft factories, which had a remarkable record of delivering a complete aircraft 24 weeks after they first cut the turf to put up the factory that's the rate we were moving at the end of the first world war in production of aircraft of those days but those aircraft used to be tested on the east side of Plough Lane so there were two activities going on on this site and um, most of the woodlands 
to my memory, were still there in 1920, particularly Cross Shores, that stayed there for some time. Now there's a little rural scene with a horse up by the barn door, but you'll notice something rather incongruous over on the left, the brickwork supporting a hangar door. That on that side of the road of Plough Lane, which runs up by those trees, were the main hangars. And there's a view, not from an approaching aircraft, but actually from the top of a radio mast. Uh, it interests me because when this was taken in 1920, uh, the road across on the left there we used to call Broadway, that's where the company offices were built, not many there at this time. Um, in the foreground is stores and transport lines, more offices and stores here. Um, over on this corner, the Met Office established themselves with their instruments up here, and a lot of the aerodrome services were accumulated in that corner. And in that gap was to appear the was to appear the first control tower in the world. Um, here, in this corner, one would find all the means of giving uh, ground signals to aircraft, um, pyrotechnics, rockets, and everything else that were already in use, and uh, certain um, lights for night use. We had a small searchlight there, down the beam of which aircraft could land if they were caught out. And it was routine at night, although there was no organized night flying, of course, in those days. Um, it was routine to put out flares in case any stray aircraft should want to make an emergency landing. That is looking eastward towards Eddington. Same spot. Uh, from the same spot looking northeast, the main hangars. I don't know whether we have any uh, aircraft recognition experts, but I think that must be uh, um, an FK 26, is it a bat? The little building here is the radio, what was to become the radio transmitter station. It is actually there its elementary stages. That used to be the RAF orderly room. Up this path one comes to the radio direction finding station which was erected in um, summer 1920 and there's the photographer. Shadow of. <laughs> that of course is Croydon, gasworks etc and with a better photograph you would see the towers of the Crystal Palace main hangars were rented out to operators and um, the National Aircraft Factory which became the Aircraft Disposal Company again around the same time that Croydon opened is on the far side here. That's the copy of a postcard made from a photograph taken from the air. Shows the group of buildings taken over from the RAF. Here are the administrative buildings, there's the Met Office, 
one or two aircraft around here, probably a farm on Goliath there. You'll notice the tarmac, so-called. The area on the apron has already started to spread. I think this photograph was taken either in 1921 or 22 because there are some amenities there which were not there in early 1920. For example, there's a tin shed here, which you'll probably see later on. When you landed from your aircraft, you were escorted along here and the customs officer did his duty under the tin roof before you moved into this building here to be here rather to be cleared and come out here to your transport then you would be driven round this way and out now you had a chance of uh, refreshment here you'll notice Newbound Farm is still installed and so it stayed for years. The farmhouse, to my memory, was one of the last buildings to come down in 1928. So um, the farmer had a pretty firm hold on his land, that's quite evident. Uh, we always had temporary hangars of some sort. It was always too small. That seems to have haunted civil aviation over the years, I think you'll agree. But we always had to have additional hangars over on the front there, and there were always more Bessano hangars here, um, replaced later on with Herview hangars, again, um, temporary and portable. I don't think there's much else to tell you there. All the ground services really were concentrated in that corner, the administration, um, pilots, or people responsible for them who wanted to report a departure or whatever messages they want sent by telephone or telegram went into a little office up here to what was called the duty office and um, when we had radio services going the, mess the messenger usually got on his bicycle and came all the way around here across the road the other side of this hangar up the path to the radio station and in due course the message was sent and that was also the route for incoming traffic the messenger had to come and fetch it no teleprinters in those days there's another view from a different direction photographers may be interested in that it's produced by another process this is a uh, abnormal use of a color transparency copying print now, on the far corner at the bottom there is the radio direction finder and that is one of the photographer's perches at the top of that mast. Now, further up, you may see the base of a tower, which is a more permanent uh, station now. This would have been taken in 1922, 23. Um, that was another perch, which was very useful to the photographer for taking views over the buildings here. Nothing very new there. I can't see whether there are any more offices built along Broadway, which is here. I don't think it's the same aircraft. You'll notice we've got Croydon in large letters. In the, in, uh, the very earliest, Croydon used to be across here. But I think they had to move it because, uh, because they wanted to extend the apron. The compass base over in the far corner. The um, 
CATO, Civil Aviation Transport Officer, as he was called, used to live in a very nice bungalow down here. And his office was in the far corner here. His name in those days was Major Greer. He was assisted by a Captain Glasson and a Mr. Davis. Those gentlemen afterwards shared these duties uh, down at Lim. Um, I thought you might like to see what pilots looked like in those days. This is uh, Captain Wally Dodd, one of the best known of the old fraternity. It gives me an opportunity to say that my memories of the whole fraternity in the air or on the ground at early Croydon um, was of the happiest. We were just a large family interested in civil aviation. We knew everything was difficult. We had some idea, most of us were in our early twenties, we had some idea of what was going on on the top layer and that the general public felt that we were all probably a little bit mad and also that the taxpayer didn't want to spend any money whatever on civil aviation. Um, Mr. Winston Churchill in those days, who was um, war minister and air minister, he was, um, he made it perfectly clear that civil aviation had got to fly by itself and the treasury hadn't much money, they would help on the ground, but there was, uh, it was no good looking for subsidies for the operating companies. That was the state in 1920, although the many services on the ground, uh, communications services, radio anyway, um, met and so on, were provided at uh, taxpayers' expense. Um, aircraft, of course, in those days, this is rather interesting. This is a bit, obviously a bit of a, of a Vickers Vimy, probably GASI, one of the uh, favorites of the old days. Um, these aircraft, this one was converted, uh, the fuselage was built to civil design, but um, practically all the, air, all the British aircraft, very few were designed as civil aircraft. That's uh, Bill Rogers, another typical pilot of the day. He's uh, using the wheel of a DH-34 as a temporary seat. These people, you'll notice, are ready for the fresh air. It was quite normal in those days, even on cabin aircraft, the cockpits were open to the fresh air and uh, plenty of noise plenty of vibration. And later on, if you happened to be on a three-engine job, then uh, if you had a dirty engine in front, that added to the uh, zest of life. But I'm no pilot. I won't attempt to give their view. It's written by many of them. Copies in the library, I believe. Not a good photograph, but it gives you some idea of what used to happen up in the northwest corner this was early 1920, and as I say, the Croydon in Chalk used to be quite close into the offices. Uh, this is the well-known cone light in its day. I think this is the pyrotechnics door. There's a searchlight perched on a table here. Ambulance. There was always a doctor on call in case it was needed at the 
aerodrome. This cone light um, used to have four lights flashing intermittently downwards, alternating with a, uh, a lighthouse beam, a general beam upwards. So the four down here would light up this white cone. It stood out quite well. Here's a Westland limousine. I think that's um, Vickers Viking Amphibian. Uh, the others are a bit too far for me to recognize, but you may see them. Uh, one of the earliest, not a passenger aircraft, not an airliner, de Havilland 6, uh, used by the Marconi Company, who did the pioneer work on developing um, airborne equipment. Uh, flown usually by a very young man named Sam Lovell, who I believe is now a doctor of medicine. Um, he used to enjoy flying this um, funny old thing. And it used to do very well for its purpose, because it had a very slow speed, and um, aerials and things like that could be tested without them uh, falling apart in the air. New ways of doing things. The DH-6, and incidentally, I didn't point out on the aerial views, but this is the famous level crossing at Croydon. That little hut is where the uh, watchman used to stay. Here our gate actually closed across Plough Lane, and there was also a bar across the road there to stop road traffic while aircraft were crossing, because, as you saw from the plan, the sheds and most of the maintenance was done on the west side and aircraft had to taxi round onto the apron before they took off. Another little bit of the uh, DH-6. Gentleman there is one of the Marconi engineers, Jock Stewart, who used to do quite a lot of flying on the early equipment testing and so on. See they've got their label on. Again, not a good photograph. I was hoping to show you a very nice one sent to me, especially by Hadley Page Transport, but I sent it away for processing, and I don't doubt that I should get it tomorrow morning. But anyway, there is an 0400. That one, my scrapbook tells me, is G-E-A-M-A. -A. Again, had I known 46 years ago, I would have taken my photographs to better advantage so that you could see which they were. Uh, these were amongst the earliest aircraft equipped with radio and as you know they were wartime bombers converted um, in various stages there were various uh, brands of um, 0400 they were given different reference numbers um, they had a bit of trouble I believe at Croydon from the pilot's point of view with full load they didn't like the rising takeoff or the downdraft they had to reduce at one period they had to reduce the maximum load but they did very well as interim civil aircraft and carried a lot of traffic and um, a lot of freight as well as passengers uh, Marconis have kindly sent me one or two of their old slides so that you could see uh, what sort of equipment they were making in the early 20s. This is the first transmitter unit ever, the AD-1 and all its bits and pieces.
the transmitter itself, of course, had to be stowed away in a safe place, not in the way of the pilot, but he had to have access to to remote controls and uh, have meters enough to tell him what was happening, whether it was going on fire or anything like that. And uh, he got his power from this windmill-driven generator. Um, you may have spotted one perched on the D86, screwed onto the uh, side of the undercarriage. That's the receiving end of it, the AD3 receiver, headset, tuning control, not connected up, but that enabled the pilot to do what was necessary in those days without any crystal drives and things. The frequencies wandered about a bit and you had to pull them into line every time you took off, so it was routine in those days for the aircraft as soon as he was airborne and on course he would call up Croydon adjust his tuning on his transmitter and receiver adjustments and we hoped uh, it would stay put until he got to Paris or Brussels or Amsterdam wherever he was going. There is the AD1 and the I think that's an AD2 but they didn't use that one after first experiments they went straight onto the AD3 and that was the combined unit was fitted to many aircraft. This is rather interesting there are one or two stories about uh, trailing aerials. They used to trail an aerial about 200 feet long with a bob weight on the end. There are two angles on this of course. If um, the operator letting this out is careless or the pilot is letting it out with a gloved hand and it slips out of his hand, the aerial in the early days used to rush down and break off. Well that had two ends to it. One is that the pilot hadn't any radio for the rest of the journey and the second is it was a bit of a hazard to anybody down below and it was not rare in the early days for irate local residents to come in carrying yards of wire and perhaps the bob weight on the end as well. That is the first um, UK direction finding station, Bolinitosi direction finding um, we hadn't reached the stage of black boxes, as you'll see. That mast, a 70-foot box mast, was built from planks and blocks on site and pulled up using a telegraph pole as a derrick. Temporary shed, you notice. This chap's relaxing outside. He happens to be Mr. Price, who was in charge in those days. You'll notice down the path to the transmitter station, far in there by the hangar. I think I've got one inside here. That's the very first. I say we hadn't reached black boxes, not black all round anyway. You'll notice this receiver is working with accumulators and things perched on the bench and nice fat tuning condensers and so on. This is the goniometer of that time, I think. Greenwich Mean Time, no doubt. This is, I recognize, as a, an oscillating unit and so on all elementary and bits and pieces and wired together the main object to be to get it going. This is um, a switchboard which enabled this operator to control the transmitter in the far building. Uh, this is the first Croydon transmitter ever again built from bits and pieces on site by Marconi engineers on the original shelving 
You'll notice there's what we call a breadboard in these days here with these things all screwed on, relays for remote control. The bits that were too heavy or too big to go on the breadboard, you'll notice, are perched on the shelf at the top. But it worked. It carried on for a year and was the control station for Southeast England for a long time. That was the very first transmitter. Not a very good slide again, but uh, it had to be copied from a faded print. This is the very first uh, direction-finding plotting map. Mnemonic projection um, made specially for the job. There are uh, compass roses marked on the map here indicating stations at Croydon and Pullham. Lynn joined in later on. The operator here is demonstrating the plotting of a fix for an aircraft over mid-channel. I won't go into the elementary principles of plotting now, but you can see how important it was on the occasions we did get where a pilot had engine failure over this bit of water here and he would put out his distress message by radio telephony and um, a lot depended on whether we got a good fix. The longer he could keep transmitting, the better chance we had. And that, that information would be passed through to the coast stations and to anybody um, helping in rescue. So radio, when it did come in, played a very important part in distress organization. Now we found something a little bit better. You notice this was in 1921. And this went hand-in-hand um, hand with the installation of a better uh, transmitter. This, um, by the way, is Mr. Stanley Mockford, who in later years became a sales manager for the Marconi Company. There is the direction finder, the actual radio goniometer. Um, fundamentally the same amplifier unit, these little valves. The first permanent transmitting aerial near the Bessonneau hangars here. Connected, of course, to the first permanent transmitter again you couldn't say this was uh, much to do with black boxes. It's all spread out. There's a standby unit there, which basically is a, an aircraft, uh, aircraft set circuit spread on a breadboard again. Um, not a very good photograph because it's copied from an old print and it's got the texture of the paper. This transmitter operated from 1921 to 1928 with very few interruptions. Uh, this is the generating side of that same room. Uh, one story at the far end. By that switchboard on the extreme left there is a little relay screwed onto the switchboard. And um, there was rather a crude way of testing 
the equipment locally before one proceeded up to open watch in the direction finding cabin 100 yards away. So people used to take the glass cover off that relay and get a little piece of wood and poke the relay in into its on position, carry out the necessary test and let it go again and uh, sometimes put the glass cover back. So we devised, we always had to scrounge these bits. Uh, we got on a normal light switch and screwed it onto one of the struts at the side of that switchboard. There it was, a perfectly innocent light switch. One night, maybe the operator had got, uh, had had to stay on late and he'd got a date with his lady friend, I don't know. Anyway, he rushed off duty, left the door open and left the switches in. Everything switched off, of course. The uh, helmeted constable, we always had proper police on the aerodrome, did his rounds late at night in the dark. He opened the battery room door at the far end, um, came to the communicating door, put his head in the door, and saw a switch. He closed the switch, and in the process of three seconds, the generator ran up to 3,000 revs per minute, and all the transmitter valves lighted up. He ran for his life to the Marconi development hut further down, and found a Marconi engineer working late, and he came up and sized up the situation and switched off. But I don't think that poor constable will ever forget that night. This was a very noisy thing because it was started by a contactor switch that went in with a frightful bang and everything happened at once. It finished up with all the valves, very brilliantly lit. So you can imagine the poor man thought his end had come. A horrible photograph, this one, but it's the only one I can show you of uh, looking into the face of a floodlight. We did have one early on. You'll see it's really doing its best to put out a flat beam. That, by the way, is well over onto the aerodrome. It's taken from the top of the transmitter mast and it's showing the shadows of the hangars. I was going to break it up, but I thought, no, I'll keep it on just for a few seconds. But you see, we did try to land them at night. That's another poor photograph of how we illuminated the transmitter masts to make a bit of a beacon. Um, now, a mixed photograph. I really put this one on not to show you the remains of GEATH, the last 0400 to be put to grass, but to show you the first neon beacon mounted on the store's chimney stack. Now some aircraft, a DH-4, but a famous one, GEA-MU. Um, Well-known pilot, Frank Barnard, operated for Samuel Instone, first for his shipping company, um, later on air routes, Instone Airline. You'll notice perhaps the Instone flag here, GEAMU, winner of the first King's Cup, London, Renfrew, London. Um, DH9, rather an interesting one because although it's operating for aircraft transport and travel, one of the early companies, it's got one of the French 
um, companies' names on. Uh, company General Trump's Arian, I think. CGT. Now, Aircraft Transport and Travel used to work in association with CGT, but why they painted CGT on a British-registered DH9, I don't know. In the background is the old friend GEASI, the Vickers Vimy Commercial. Airco 18, Aircraft Transport and Travel. The pilots liked this aircraft, although it had its drawbacks. It flew very well, but you'll notice that the pilot is right back behind the cabin, so it was a very blind aircraft, and they had to do quite a bit of weaving to see where they were on the ground. Napier Lion, 10 passengers, I think. GEARI was the prototype. Did a lot of work in 1920, 21, 22. Uh, GEASI, City of London, operated originally from Hounslow, then from Croydon, by Instone Airline. This was a very popular machine amongst the larger types. Inside GEASI, basket chairs, special compartment, special compartment for luggage, and evident communication with the cockpit. One of the earliest aircraft designed by Colhoven for civil use, FK-26. This is one of the Aeronautical Society's slides. Westland limousine, larger size. There were two sizes of limousine. That's taken near the radio station. I'm not giving you too many technical details of these because um, I'm supposed to be talking about an aerodrome and my trouble has been to stop getting airborne. That's uh, the aerodrome part of uh, a Westland anyway, what happens to it on the ground. In those days the water went out of this, was pumped up from the tank and petrol was still delivered in two gallon cans. Rather an interesting one, Beardmore, WB2. Um, this was operated by William Beardmore and it was used for an experimental service inland, but it didn't last very long. It did operate sometimes, I believe, from Cricklewood, but this was an occasion when it paid a rare, rare visit to Croydon. Um, these markings on the farm and Goliath always used to interest me, I remember, because they seemed to, the registry people in Paris seemed to take a delight in making permutations of F, H, M and Y. There were several registrations with rearrangements of the same letters. I was talking to M.L. Boudry many years ago about an aircraft that I thought had been badly damaged, but it was back on service again, and he said, oh, as long as we can get a few struts from the old aircraft, we can preserve the old registration. That may have been an exaggeration, but that's what he told me. 
not a good photograph of a famous aircraft, Bert Hinkler's Avro Baby, one on which he flew to uh, Turin, and uh, also he flew home to Australia on this back in uh, the early 20s, taken inside the hangar at Croydon, otherwise I wouldn't dare show the photograph. Uh, Farmer and Goliath, there were lots of these. They um, didn't have much of a turn of speed, but they went on flying and flying and flying. They had many forced landings through engine trouble, but they were quite safe to land in fields and things. And they carted a lot of traffic, there's no doubt about it. Closed-in cabin and closed-in, uh, I think the pilot had his head out here, yes. I remember one uh, having an accident on the famous ridge at Croydon, and it tipped up on its nose, and the nose came off, and the passengers slid along the floor under the pilot's cockpit and slid out onto the ground through the nose. Nobody hurt, although the aircraft was on fire. Um, they used to do remarkable things in taking heavy weights to great heights. They held a few records for a time. Uh, Blerio Spad, sometimes I've seen them called Spad Home of Herbermore, um, operated by Compagnie Massagerie Arian. They worked in association with handy page transport from Cricklewood, sometimes you will find that uh, Blerios and Spads and uh, Breguets landed at Cricklewood as well as at Croydon. I haven't got a good photograph of a Breguet here. That's a Newport Scout used as a mail carrier. Again, operated by a French company, but worked in conjunction with uh, handy page transport. Very scratchy. This is interesting because it's one of the earliest aircraft operated by the Belgian company, Sneeter, the first one. Um, this was a company formed to study transport organizations, so it did not run regular services. But we did see some of these aircraft over. I'm never quite sure whether this is a Cabinized 9 or a DH-4. Anyway, you can see the sneeter on the rudder. And we used to see them sometimes, and they did transport the King of the Belgians, King Albert, as he was then, uh, and the royal family over to Croydon for some special visit in London. That was about the same time, and I think it suggests a quarantine problem. I think this uh, gentleman or young lady had to stay in the aircraft while his uh, pilot or friends were doing their business and he in due course went back to Brussels. But he certainly wasn't allowed to land. An early Fokker, I'm not quite sure, I think it's an F2 with a round radiator. We didn't see many of them in the early years, they'd pop over to see us, but uh, actually KLM started operating in conjunction with aircraft transport and travel. They chartered AT&T aircraft to start the 
Dutch service in uh, May 1920. Later on, of course, it was run in by uh, British pilots. Later on, it was taken on by Dutch aircraft and Dutch pilots, and a very excellent service they ran, too. An old um, Bristol 10-seater. There were two. There was one with an AP Lion. This one's got a Jupiter. Later on, I think they were relegated to freight. But in these days, one would see new types of aircraft all trying their strength on this problem of earning their own living without subsidy. Uh, later effort of handy page transport, the W8, three or four of these, did a wonderful job, carried heaps of traffic, but they had the difficulty of managing on one engine. And as in many other cases, it uh, led to trouble in extremity. Um, this was very rudely called the flying pig, because welcome. Another effort to make a civil aircraft pay its way. It was uh, the first one was underpowered with a more powerful engine. I think it still finished up. It did passenger work on European routes for some time, but latterly it was used for freight until it had uh, done its day. Several of them. That was always one of my favorites in my early twenties, the Gloucester Mars One. We used to have our fun at Croydon on these um, aerial derby days and King's Cup affairs and so on. We had our share. Um, this was um, flown mainly by a pilot, J.H. James. And it used to win, win many races. It's really a flying Napier Lion, the mammal. A Bristol racer came to a sad end with Major Foot, but it uh, did quite a bit of flying in the competitions, races going on in the early twenties. Again, it's photographed when it visited Croydon. TH-34, one of the milestones in development of uh, civil aircraft, uh, designed again for efficiency. The, this uh, series of aircraft were bought by the Air Council, most of them anyway, and leased out to Instone Airline and Dame La Hire in, the, in 1922, carried an enormous amount of traffic. Pilots, I think, thought they were a bit troublesome in uh, full load takeoff at Croydon. We used to be a bit worried on occasion. They used to use them for early morning newspaper service to the continent. They'd leave at four o'clock in the morning 
and um, with a full load of newspaper, of course, paper can be very heavy stuff. They wanted to make best use of space, but uh, it was a very long run, and they used to get over these trees, and we were very glad when they called up on the radio. Very good aircraft, and I think the pilots liked it. That's an old one. Ancient Fokker, maybe an F2. Spad. Don't know that one. I believe that is LU, a DH-16 that used to be used for uh, a lot of radio testing in the early days of aircraft transport and travel. This is Marconi's development hut. We used to see our airships on occasion. That's R-33 passing over the top of the direction finding station. Of course, Croydon radio was always needed whenever anything uh, was going on in the air. And the um, airships used to make full use of Croydon station because it was in easy contact with London. Its base normally, of course, would be Pulham or one of the other airship stations. I'd never made up my mind whether this was, a, this was a failure of intercom or just plain mutiny. But why it uh, took on that position on the mast, I shall never know. This would have been taken in 1921 at Croydon when we had that uh, mast erected on the far side, on the west, caused scandal in the press the number of thousands of pounds that were spent on this uh, visit. Uh, all this was arranged during one of the visits of the uh, Dominion Premiers. It's one of their special days. The airships came to see, it, came to see them. This is R-33 on the mast at Croydon. 1922, it had all disappeared again. Snow on Broadway in the previous one. I put this one in. It's kind of lent me by the Board of Trade, I should say now, the Ministry of Civil, of Civil Aviation folk. It's an ancient one of the very first control tower in the world, and it's, um, it interests me particularly because it's got a sound locator on top, which was another experiment to try and locate aircraft on their approach. It wasn't very successful in my memory. It might have been a question of training with the chap who used to look after the lights and run this as well. But uh, the only occasion I remember was when uh, a KLM aircraft was approaching over the mist and fog and he couldn't find Croydon and he overshot and the operator manned the sound locator and thought he'd got an engine and he followed it, and he followed it, and the phone rang, and um, KLM were safely down on ups and downs, and it appears that the sound locator had picked up a tram going along Stafford Road. A lot happened on that control tower early 1923 onwards, when we tried to get things literally under control, and to help and cooperate more with the air in advising them what to do. The radio staff had done the best they could, but they were told that they were not allowed to do certain things. There was a happy stage, I remember, when we used to call up the pilot 
with uh, using the direction finder and give him courses to fly, which of course was doing his navigation for him. And we were quickly reminded that we were not there to do that and we must stop it. But the pilots were thoroughly enjoying it. And of course, on the uh, reciprocal bearing basis, one end you hope always finishes up over the aerodrome. But um, it certainly worked and, and did some good in its day. But it wasn't allowed that way. This is uh, snow on Broadway. So you see we used to have our troubles on the ground as well as in the air. Lots of inter interesting signs around the entrance. Now, I said at the beginning I think I might get to 1924 or thereabouts. I can leave you, I think, at about this stage, which is the height of the terrible competition period where five or six operating companies were fighting for a limited amount of traffic. Here you can see, although it's a terrible photograph, you can see Handy Page Transport large sign. And I think I can see Instone Airline on the opposite side of the road somewhere you would find something to do with Daimler Air Airway. Uh, control towers there, the cone light is there. But um, that I'm interested in that photograph because everybody's advertising to get the traffic and the French companies were subsidized and doing the same thing. Now, this is where we've reached the stage where the committee of that day, the handling committee, had recommended what should be done. Uh, 1924, Imperial Airways has been formed. Everything is under control and all the labels are down. They are now all part of Imperial Airways. You'll notice that the cone light has moved. I think that must be because it was necessary to extend the apron. Oh, that's um, a Fokker F7A. It deserves a write-up in any history book because it was a marvellous aircraft and did heaps of work very efficiently. I remember, I don't know whether I put the gentleman in or not. Yes, I did. This is pilot syllabus of KLM. I had a lucky trip over to Rotterdam and when we were passing over the tunnel he reminded me that um, all Fokker aircraft with that type of wing, the whole fuselage is hanging on four bolts. He told me that over the sea, but it didn't worry me. Uh, this is another old friend of the, Vickers, the first Vickers Vanguard. All these names crop up again. This one used to carry over 20 passengers. It was uh, experimented with over several years. Motors were changed and all sorts. And um, on one occasion, that's when we had radio at home. In the latter 20s, it took up the Savoy Orpheans band all complete. And it broadcast over the radio down to ground and it was passed on to the BBC. Savoy Orpheans flying over London in the one and only Vanguard. There was only one of these. Uh, this actually is taken on the apron of the new airport on Purley Way. But it does show another development 
in civil aircraft that um, was brought about by Imperial Airways and um, produced an aircraft that worked jolly hard not only here but on uh, Empire route. This is another of the society's slides. Incidentally, just now I meant to tell you something about airmail, but um, I did note the other day in an ancient record that the uh, Royal Aeronautical Society, way back when Mr. Holt Thomas was saying it would solve half the problems if only the government would agree to all first-class mail being taken by air back in 1920, that... Um, if that could be done, it would solve all the problems, or most of the problems, financially. And the Royal Aeronautical Society at that time declared that as far as possible, all its mail would be sent by air. I was interested to note that. Um, oh, yes, another Dominion Premier's occasion. Argosis, another one up there, I think, a whole variety on the front. Arrangements evidently for refreshments along here in the Marquise. Um, this aircraft interests me. I believe it's an Abro. I'm not sure of its number, but there's a continuation here. Incidentally, there's some um, aircraft disposal. A huge factory and repair shop on the far side. This is probably a good place to stop. It shows you the tail end. Um, I don't know whether this is a Hampstead aircraft, I can't see its marking. It was an experiment to uh, give a, a W8 more power. But you see the one I think is the Avro on the far side. Um, beyond signs of the future, the new hangars are going up, the skeleton of the new control tower in the administrative building. And perhaps that's a um, pretty fair place to stop, although I'm very conscious of the fact that this is only part one. There was heaps more I could have told you, but um, I preferred to tell it, turn it into a picture show rather than a long story. And I think I'll leave you there. Thank you very much.